Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic and the Moon podcast. As always, I'm your host, David, and this week we are continuing our series on discussing the Bible from the lens of paganism and polytheism. Last week, we discussed um, the first chapter of the book of Genesis, and this week we are picking up right where we left off, and we're discussing uh, Genesis chapter 2. So this is kind of a longer one, so for the sake of time, I'm just going to get right into it. So verse 1, the heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. By the seventh day, the gods had finished the work they had been doing, and they ceased. On the seventh day, all the work that they had been doing. The gods blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on that day, they had ceased all the work they had done in creation. So let's dissect. The heavens and the earth were completed. They were completed, uh, everything that was in them. And in Hebrew, this translates more literally to, and all the hosts of them. And this refers to just all the entities and creatures that the gods have created to populate the world. And my understanding, again, is not just like literal, like physical beings of plants and animals, but also, again, the creation of other deities and spirits that filled the world. By the seventh day, the gods have finished the work they'd been doing. And they had ceased. Um, and this is where we get the word Shabbat. Um, and we see this day, Sabbath, Sabbath day, the day of rest. Um, from Hebrew, it can be translated to mean to rest, but it just means to stop or to cease. Um, and this is not a rest from exhaustion because the gods do not get tired <laughs> the way that we do. They don't have physical bodies and ailments the way that we do. But um, this is just to say that they stopped, that it was finished, that it was completed. So the gods blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on that day they had ceased the work they had done. So to make it holy, um, to sanctify it, this this verb in Hebrew is piel, kadesh, which means to make something holy, to set something apart, to distinguish it. And on the literal level, the phrase means essentially that the gods made this day different and special. But within the context of Jewish rabbinical law, it means that that day belonged to God and it was a time to rest from ordinary labor and activity um, because you're supposed to worship and give thanks to God instead of working because that was God's day. And this is where things get very interesting. So picking up in verse four is now where we kind of hear the creation of man and woman. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the gods made the earth and the heavens. This is the account. Uh, the Hebrew phrase is el tediot, which means these are the generations of. Um, because the noun came from the verb beget or to beget. And this usage kind of shows that it's a genealogy. It begins a narrative that traces what became of one entity or one individual. So a good paraphrasing could be, this is what became of the heavens and the earth. Because what follows is not another account of creation, but it's a tracing of events from creation through the fall, the judgment, etc., which we'll talk about later. So, in verse 5, Now no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the gods had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. 
springs would well up from the earth and the water and the whole surface of the ground. The gods formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils and the breath of life, and he became a living being. This is a lot. So let's talk about this. No shrub of the field had grown and no plant of the field had sprouted. So a more literal translation from Hebrew would say that every sprig of the field was before it was. Um, this is referring to some background information because it gives a negative clause before this, before it existed. So this is showing that water did not function the way that we know it to now in the sense of like having a water cycle with rain and evaporation and stuff. So there's no man to cultivate the ground. Um, and these two differences kind of explain that nothing was cultivated. Um, the general growth, there was no rain. There were no grains to harvest because there was no one to cultivate them. There was no one to work the, the land. So the gods formed the man from the soil of the ground. Uh, the word sometimes is used as fashioned, that the gods fashioned them out of the ground. And the word in Hebrew, yatsar, means to form, or to fashion, to shape, or design. So this is an artist's work. Um, and we see later on in the book of Jeremiah that the gods refer to as being sculptors or potters. So this is an artistic statement that it wasn't building something as a tool or as a function, but it was building something meant to be appreciated and beautiful. So the gods formed the man from the soil and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life, and he became a living being. So the breath of life, the word is nimshama. Um, this word is used for life imparted to humans specifically and not to animals. So its usage in the Bible conveys more than just a, an organism that lives. Whatever is given this breath of God becomes animated with the life of the gods and it has a spiritual understanding, a spiritual consciousness. So human life is described here as consisting of a body made from the soil of the ground and the breath given by the gods. And even though both animals and humans are called living beings, humankind has a different and more spiritual way of existing. Um, that's not necessarily what I agree with. And again, I'm not, none of this is necessarily my personal theologies, but um, this is just walking through the literature. But this is where I think there is an erasure of more pagan spirituality that predates the Bible because a lot of pagan thought is very animistic, is very pantheistic so to say that humans are better or at a higher level than animals are spiritually i would say probably many of us would not agree with that but that is what the text says um okay picking back up verse eight the gods planted an orchard in the east in eden and there they placed the man they had formed the gods made all kinds of trees grown from the soil and every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. Now the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. So, the Lord gods, the gods, planted an orchard in the east. This is referring to the Garden of Eden. Um, and traditionally this is called a garden, but um, the subsequent description of the garden makes it kind of clear that it's an orchard of trees and the gods planted an orchard. 
Um, nothing is really said of how the creation took place. We can probably come to the conclusion that it was by decree or it was spoken into existence like how most things were. But the narrative sequence here kind of suggests that creation of the garden followed the creation um, of man, of humanity. So, every type of tree that had grown from the soil that was pleasing to look at. It was good for food. But the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. So this part ends with a disjunctive clause, and this gives kind of a parenthetical bit of information about the existence of, there are many different types of trees, but there are two special kinds of trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, which we'll talk about more when we discuss chapter three, could be interpreted to mean a tree that produces life-giving fruit rather than a tree that is living, um, but that's kind of a different conversation. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil must be interpreted to mean that the tree that produces fruit, which when eaten, gives special knowledge of good and evil. Scholars debate this a lot, this particular phrase, um, but one view is that good refers to that which enhances and promotes and produces life, while evil refers to anything that hinders that or destroys life. So to eat from this tree would change something fundamental about human nature. People would be able to alter life for the better, like they're thinking, or for the worse. So a different view um, is the one that understands that knowledge of good and evil is the capacity to discern the difference between good and evil. And the following context kind of suggests that the freeze, the freeze, the tree's fruit gives someone the wisdom um, to discern between the difference between the two things. And this is a characteristic of divinity as the serpent implies later. So that's all we're going to say about that right now, because that will become more relevant as we continue. Um, okay, we're going to pick it back up at verse 8. The gods planted an orchard in the east, in Eden, and there they placed the man they had formed. The gods made all kinds of trees grown from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. Now the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. Now a river flows from Eden to water the orchard, and from there it divides into four head streams. The name of the first is Pishon. It runs through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is pure. Pearls and lapis lazuli are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It runs through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs across the side of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Let's discuss. The river flows from Eden. And the Hebrew active word here can be translated as was flowing uh, in the past tense or flows in the present tense. Since the river was the source of the other rivers, it appears to describe a situation that still exists at the time that this is being narrated. So, present tense. And this suggests that Eden and its orchards still existed at the time that this was being narrated. And according to ancient Jewish tradition, Enoch was taken to the garden and his presence kind of kept the garden um, and spared it from the destructive waters of the flood that happens later with Noah. Okay, so the name of the first is Pishon. 
runs to the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold. The gold is pure, there's pearls, lapis lazuli, etc. So for pearls, the Hebrew translation um, refers to resin, meaning that it was precious stones, but also that it might have just been herbs and like spices and things. And lapis lazuli um, is also sometimes translated as onyx, but I think we can infer more literally that it refers to lapis because of the geographic area of where this would be in the Near East, because that's still where lapis lazuli comes from. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it runs through the entire land of Kush. So in Kush, um, the Hebrew word sometimes refers to Ethiopia, but it may also refer to a region of Mesopotamia that would later be referred to as Babylon, and that's obviously very significant in later parts of the biblical narrative. The name of the third river is Tigris, or Tigris. It runs along the east side of Assyria, and the fourth is the Euphrates. Okay, verse 15. The gods took the man and placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and to maintain it. Then the gods commanded that man may eat freely the fruit from every tree of the orchard, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, surely you will die. So, um, placed him in the orchard. This translates sometimes to the Garden of Eden, but again, I've already explained why this is more appropriately called an orchard, not a garden. But he was given the task of caring for it and maintaining it. Um, more literally from Hebrew, it translates to work it and to keep it. So this is saying that the man's task is to care for and maintain the trees of the orchard because he's not actually told to cultivate the soil until later. You may eat freely the fruit from every tree, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, for when you eat it, you will surely die. So the imperfect verb of eat um, probably carries the nuance of permission, like you may eat. He's not being commanded to eat from every tree, but he is being told that he is allowed to do so. So you may freely eat, or you can eat to your heart's content, would be a better paraphrase. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is indicating a permission. He's saying you cannot do that. Um, so if we understand the expression to have this more precise meaning of like in the very day, as soon as you eat it, you will die. This following narrative gives a problem because obviously for those of us that know the story, he does not physically die as soon as he eats from the tree. Um, so in this case, you could kind of argue that it's more of a spiritual death. Um, because if physical death is in view, there are kind of two options to explain. Option one is that you will surely die concerns mortality, which eventually results in death, meaning like you were not created in a way that you would ever physically die. The original plan is that you participated in the nature of the gods and that you would live forever and that eating by the fruit corrupted that nature and then eventually you will end your physical existence and die. Or option two um, that the gods mercifully gave them a, a reprieve and allowed them to live longer than they should have. So he was able to live out the rest of his human days because God kind of gave some uh, some permissiveness there for him to do that. Okay, verse 18. The gods said, It is not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. And the gods formed out of the ground every living animal of the field and every bird of the air. They brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whenever the man called each living creature, that became its name. 
So the man names all the animals, all the birds of the air, all the living creatures of the field. But for Adam, no companion who corresponded to him was found. So it is not good for man to be alone. Um, a more literal translation from Hebrew would say the being of man by himself is not good. And we need to define good uh, within context because within this creation context, the gods instruct humanity to be fruitful and multiply. And if he's alone, he can't do that. So him being alone prevents him from fulfilling the design of creation and therefore it is not good for that reason. I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. So traditionally, companion is sometimes translated as helper, um, but the English word helper can kind of give many different ideas, so it doesn't really accurately convey the context of the Hebrew word ezer. So the Hebrew term doesn't really give a subordinate role like helper can have in English. So helper is more like someone that does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, someone that meets our needs. So a better translation would be indispensable companion. The woman would supply for the man what he lacks in his design, and she would be something that is an equal and completing part of him. So he named all the animals, um, but there was no companion for Adam that would correspond to him that was found. And so in Hebrew, um, a more literal translation would be, there was not found a single companion that was like him. And the subject of this like third masculine verb is indefinite. So without a formally expressed subject, we could say there was not found. It was not found. All right, picking it back up at verse 21. The gods caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was asleep, the gods took from the man's side and closed up with flesh. The gods made a woman from the part that they had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man then said, this one at last is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh, and they will be called woman, for she was taken out of me a man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife, and they become a new family. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. This is obviously a very gender essentialist and heterosexist view of things. Um, and I'm definitely going to talk about LGBTQ themes in the Bible and like queer, uh, queer spirituality and queer sexuality later on, but that is not really being discussed here, but we will get to that. So if you're not a straight cisgendered person, don't worry. We will have our moment too. <laughs> so the gods put him to sleep, um, took part of his side and the Hebrew, it says, and he slept. Um, or while he slept. So sometimes people translate this into English as rib, but the Hebrew word literally means side, um, that he took one from his sides, part of his sides. And this idea fits better with the explanation that by the man, the woman is the flesh of his flesh and the bone of his bone. So the gods made a woman from the part they had taken from the man. Um, the Hebrew word is bana, which means to make or build or construct. So the text is saying that the gods built the rib into a woman. Um, and the passage doesn't really give an indication of how this was done specifically. The man said, this one at last is the bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. So the Hebrew word for this one at last is hapa'am, which means this time, now finally. So this is showing the futility 
of the man because it's showing a frustration of he's doing all these things and he's in the orchard and he's naming the animals, but he's alone. So this is showing an end to his frustration. This one will be called a woman. The Hebrew text here is very precise. It says of this one, it will be said woman. The text does not necessarily say that the man named his wife. Um, we see that happen actually later in chapter three, but some argue that naming implies that there is an authority or an ownership um, that the man has over the woman. And that's obviously not something I think is great or that I hold to be a personal view of mine. And I'm sure many of you would agree, but um, this is a Semitic culture and very patriarchal, especially at the time of the writing. So that is the context that women were not treated um, particularly well, and certainly not as well as men. So verse 24, the last verse, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife, and they become a new family. The man and his wife are both naked, but they were not ashamed. So, for she was taken out of man. Uh, this poetic section kind of expresses the correspondence between the man and the woman. She is the bone of his bone, the flesh of his flesh. And there's a wordplay between man and woman. Woman being isha, a man being ish. And on the surface, it kind of appears that the word for woman is just a feminine form of the word for man. But the two words are not related etymologically. The sound and the sense give that impression, but it's actually just very, very clever wordplay. So that is why a man leaves. Um, in this statement, the Hebrew phrase alken, which means therefore a man leaves, or this is why a man leaves. Um, it's more of an editorial comment. This statement kind of describes what typically happens, not necessarily what will happen or what should happen. Um, it's kind of like saying, this is why we do things the way we do. It links a contemporary narrator um, to a historical practice that's being narrated. So the historical event provides the basis for the contemporary practice. Um, so it's kind of a mythic founding of the Jewish marriage custom, in a sense. So a man leaves his father and mother. Um, this is an imperfect verb. It has a habitual or characteristic nuance. Another example is alken, which means therefore, or this is why. And this indicates that this is a characteristic behavior. So the narrator is using an exaggeration um, to emphasize the change that usually happens when a man has thoughts of love and marriage and sex. So it's not saying, well, you have to be a good man and leave your family and go get married. This is just um, an exaggerated metaphor for coming of age, for puberty, for when you become sexually or romantically aware that you not always but often see your family less and see your preferred gender more often is what that's saying. So there's definitely some cultural context that makes this heterosexist, but it's not as disgustingly heterosexual <laughs> as it sounds in English. Um, so he leaves his father and his mother and he unites with his wife. Um, this kind of could more traditionally translate to cling to his wife or stick to his wife. And we see this again um, in the book of Ruth in the context of two women. Uh, Ruth and Naomi. So this is showing that like, there's a desire sexually to be close to someone and that that desire is not exclusive to heterosexual people, nor should it be. They become a new family. Um, sometimes the Hebrew says they become one flesh. And this kind of 
consecutive issue carries the same habitual or characteristic nuance as I mentioned before. It doesn't mean they literally become one flesh, but it is um, a metaphor referring to sexual union. They're united in the body because they are sexually intimate. So the man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Um, In Hebrew, it more literally translates to, and the two of them were naked, the man and his wife. And this motif of nakedness is introduced here, and it will play a very important role in the next chapter. Because in the biblical text, nakedness conveys different things. So in this context, it is signifying either innocence or integrity, depending on how you define those things. There's not any fear. There's no exploitation. There's not a sense of being vulnerable. But after the entrance into what people would call sin, um, nakedness becomes negative, and it's connected to shame, exploitation, vulnerability, exposure, etc. So, but at this point, they were not ashamed. And this is continuing the condition that they were created in. They were perfect. They were in the nature of the gods. They were not meant to die. They didn't experience shame. There was nothing wrong with their bodies. So interesting stuff. That's all I have for you this time. Next week, we're going to pick up where we left off at chapter three. And this is where the serpent enters the garden and things get very, very interesting. And we're we're really going to flip the traditional Christian narrative on its head. So I'm very excited to share that with you all. And I will see you next time.